Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Do you ever wish, I have a question for you, do you ever wish God had a face? There's a story I found about a about a family that went to the mountains for a vacation. As Marty and I did recently, and their cottage overlooked a really nice lake. And after a swim and a dinner, it was bedtime. And so the mother tenderly prepares her daughter for bed, tucks her in, heard her prayers, kissed her, said goodnight, left the room. And then immediately the young girl called for her to come back. The child started to raise some really difficult questions about God. And patiently the mom listened, and then to reassure her, mom said, we'll be on the porch, there's nothing to hurt you. God is in the dark as well as the light. But the child came up with this really insightful comeback to the mom. She said, but I can't see him in the dark, mommy. I want a God with a face. Don't we all? Wouldn't we all like that? When night comes and trouble knocks maybe and disappointments come during the day, problems pile up. I think we crave a God with a face that we can go to. And in our anxiety, in our agony maybe sometimes, we might join David's prayer in Psalm 24 when he says, we are people who seek the face of God. Well, in our text, in our text today of Scripture, we're going to see God's face revealed in more than one way. A face we can recognize, a face we can relate to, that can help us, encourage us, and we're going to see how that's going to happen right here. And as you heard read this morning, this is coming in the midst of one of the most dramatic moments in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's one of the most dramatic moments in all of Scripture. It's gripping and it's literally and figuratively soaked with blood and sweat and tears. And we're going to see how prayer pr- plays such a big part in what we call the last temptation of the Christ. And this text, for some of you, is going to make you cry as we dig in, maybe. And it will encourage you at the same time. I think before we're done, it may bring conviction to some of us. And so to set the stage, I would tell you as a reminder, the Lord's been tempted more than once in his life, including the first temptation in the wilderness. You'll remember when he started his ministry. You can read that in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. That's where the enemy tried to tempt Jesus from going to the cross by having him make bread when he was hungry in his fast. Later submit to him that the devil would give him all the kingdoms in the world if he would just bow the knee to him. And now here, at what's going to be the end of his life, Satan is going to try to keep him from the cross by tempting him to avoid the suffering that would redeem mankind going forward. We don't know what he said to Jesus exactly. It's not in the text of Scripture. But if I had to spiritually speculate, it might go something like, do you realize how bad this is going to be, Jesus? Do you understand what you're going to go through? I mean, you're going to suffer 
pain the likes that few people have ever even imagined. And for who? Those people? Losers that have been cursing your name, ignoring you their whole lives? Really? You're going to do that for them? Why do it? So, if that might be something like the truth, how is the Lord going to deal with that? He's finished preparing the disciples. He's taught them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Warned them about the persecution to come. And after their final Passover meal together, which is going to become the Lord's Supper, he made two predictions or prophecies. The first one, he said there would be a traitor among them that would betray him. We all know who that is. And then they would all deny him in less than 24 hours. And, of course, the Apostle Peter denied that he would deny him. As we saw in the fight for faith we talked about last time. So now it's about, picture this, about midnight, Thursday night, going into Friday morning of the Passion Week. Jesus and the disciples are kind of making their way through this path called the Kidron Valley. It's very narrow between the walled city of Jerusalem to go up and through the Mount of Olives. And in the text, I want to share with you three points I found here that I think are going to bring big-time application to your life. We're going to find in here an exhortation, a supplication, and then an admonition. And we'll unpack those one at a time. First, the exhortation that comes in verse 32 and goes to verse 34. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, which literally means olive press. That's why it has that name, and the Mount of Olives. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So this is like an olive grove that they're going to walk into. And it's a, it's a secluded place. And Luke's account tells us that the Lord told them at that moment, pray that you would not enter into temptation. So the message becomes clear from the get-go, like what the expectation is about. And it's about engaging in spiritual warfare, in which prayer is the key component or the weapon in that battle. I'll be honest with you here. It will be plain to see that you're going to find Jesus and his word. They don't tell us to pick fights with Satan and call him out and tell him this, that, or the other thing, or make claims or whatever. He just tells us to pray and go to the word. I mean, it's been said that prayer for the Christian is like breathing for like any person, right? You have to do it in order to live. So Jesus' life was characterized by prayer. In fact, you follow him in Scripture, and you would see that he would pray in the early morning hours, pre-dawn, every day to start his day. And, and that's compelling. I think it should be compelling because we were saved to be more like our Savior, Jesus. Right? So he always made it a priority to do the tag thing I've mentioned before, time alone with God. He was big on that. But now he's telling them... Sit here to eight of them. Eight of you guys, I want you to sit here, stay alert, keep an eye out while I pray, because this is going to be an extraordinary time that needs extraordinary prayer. And then he does something interesting in verse 33, and he took with them, with him, Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 
he doesn't call all of the disciples and the apostles to follow him as he kind of moves a little distance away from the others. He calls the inner circle of his apostles to join him. This is the three that are going to lead the church when it's birthed. Peter, James, and John, who are brothers. They're called the sons of Zebedee. And these are the ones he was closest to. He had at his side, for instance, when he raised Jairus, his daughter from the dead. They were there with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were like his big three. And I think he's got them with him because there's going to be a big lesson to learn for them to live and then to give to the others about the necessity and the power of corporate prayer, which is obviously a lesson for all of us. Our Lord is going to war with the devil here and his minions, and he needs to pray, and he's calling for backup. He's calling for reinforcements, which is why we pray the way we do in this church on Sunday and our other meetings and, and why what we do and how we do it every week with our Thursday prayer meeting on Zoom, which is the best way for us right now to do it. And just that one hour, that once a week, that's so God's people from Christ Community Church can pray following the pattern of the Lord's Prayer for grace and supplication for our church. And that's me, you, our country, our community, and the world. But Jesus is asking his disciples to help him pray to fight off temptation. As a human being, yes, even as God in the flesh, listen, he's not a little stressed out. He's greatly distressed with the kind of emotional pain that brings that kind of the heaviness that you may have felt in your soul before that leads to depression. And it says he was sorrowful. He was troubled. The Greek word, the literal definition of it, speaks to a restlessness that comes from an anxiety that, believe it or not, compares to a feeling of terror. This is another example, as we sang about this morning, Pastor George told us about the humanity of Christ, the human face of God, which began, interestingly enough, at Christmas, his incarnation, the birth from a human being, Mary. And this is a nature, a human nature he carried voluntarily. We've talked about that. He hungered, like people get hungry. He felt sadness. He probably laughed. We know in John 11 he cried. He didn't even know at this time when he would return for his second coming. And he would feel pain. And he had to. He had to. In order to be the perfect priest and sacrifice for us, he had to be tempted or tested as you and I are. And he had to suffer as we do. In fact, his suffering far exceeds anything that most of all, that most of us will ever go through. So he's going through an incredible amount of emotional stress here. In fact, I would say the words that you have in your Bible in English, even in the original Greek in which is written, don't do justice to what he's going through. I think the words are inadequate, really, to describe what he's going through. Verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus is feeling an anguish at the prospect of what is to come in the hours ahead. That's what's causing him great stress and strain. And other translations tell us his very heart and soul is so overwhelmed 
His grief is so great as to the point of bringing him to death. I mean, that's what he said. And I'll tell you, you may know, you may have heard of people whose emotional grief have led to physical issues, have led to death before. I mean, I know of people whose emotional stress has led to fatal heart attacks. And this is confirmed by Luke, where only his gospel gives us this detail. That being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. People, I don't think that's a figure of speech. This sounds like hematohydrosis. That's a mouthful. That's a somewhat rare medical condition that can occur in a person who is suffering from such extreme levels of stress that the blood vessels in the head can swell to the point that they can burst and the blood would mix then with sweat from the sweat glands. And episodes like that, even more, would be preceded by intense headaches, abdominal pain. So this is what a bit of what our Lord is going through in this garden prayer. This is a real thing. In fact, the artist Da Vinci knew and described a soldier who sweated blood before a battle. You're probably thinking, what exactly would make the Lord Jesus stress out like this? I mean, we could speculate. Was it the emotional pain of the desertion of Peter and the other ten disciples? That may have contributed to it. Was it the rejection of most of the people and the religious leaders of Israel to come? Could be. Could it be the physical pain of the torture? He knew he was about to go through in a few hours and then a barbaric death, execution by crucifixion. Maybe. I mean, that, that would do it for me. Right? You think? I mean, it's one thing to die. It's quite another to be beaten, tortured, and then hung naked, nailed to a cross in public as a curse on a tree, as the Bible says. So the petition now he makes, or the supplication of the prayer he makes, is going to answer these kind of questions in the supplication. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So our Lord makes kind of like a, walks about a stone's throw away from this rest of the group. And you hear here the heart of the Son of God. As a man, he cries out to God his Father, Abba. That's an Aramaic term. It's a very personal, intimate way of referring to a father like a young Jewish child would refer to his father like a dad, daddy. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans and Galatians, that we can even pray that way to the Father. And so, in essence, the Lord is saying, can, can you let this hour, this event, this thing that's coming up here, at this time, can you let it go away, pass, without me? Jesus seems to add, you can do anything I know, but would it be your will, your desire to let this cup pass? take it away from me. What is this cup he's talking about? 
That's actually an Old Testament metaphor for judgment. It's mentioned throughout the Old Testament, a bunch of places. In fact, the Apostle Paul, toward the end of his life, talked about pouring out his life as a drink offering. Cup. So the hour and the cup are synonymous here with the cross. And in fact, according to John, within the hour maybe, as he's being arrested in the garden, the guards are closing in. It's getting pretty physical. And he tells Peter to put his sword away, and he tells him, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So this is about prayer here. And there are two things that stick out to me from this passage. The one we're right here and now. Number one, it's interesting, the Lord knew this was coming, and that it was the Father's will. He had predicted this trial and this death before these men at least three times before in this Gospel. And at the beginning of the Passion Week, we find in John 12, when he's staying in Bethany, he told a, a crowd, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so he's referring there to his death and that he has to go through it. Yet he's still praying to his Father that the cup of the cross might pass. Second thing is that Jesus, this is really interesting, as the Son of God has the power and the authority to just make this go away. And he didn't. I mean, couldn't he just have gathered himself and just kind of cast out this emotional turmoil that he's in just by the word of his power, like when he stilled the raging sea of Galilee? Be still, he said to the water. I mean, couldn't he have told himself, be still? That's possible, but he didn't do that. Again, this is a lesson for us. The Son of Man is an example for us. How would you handle this kind of stress if you had to go through it? That would overwhelm you. Some people would rush to take a pill, smoke something. Who knows? What's the first thing he does? He does the main thing. The king prays to his father. He talks to God. And that's for us to know to see. And it needs to be said this, when the Lord is asking the Father to let this cup pass if it's possible, he's not wondering if God is powerful enough to pull it off and rescue him. It's not what he means. It's like the Lord told Jeremiah, the prophet, is there anything too hard for me? You know, rhetorical, obviously nothing. Jesus is talking about that secret, determined will of God, that will of decree that nobody knows, to the point where he's saying something like, Father, if this would be part of your plan and part of your purpose, would you take this cup from me? And that supplication, folks, I mention this because it's really important to understand how it is to pray in the will of God. Because when you pray in Jesus' name, that's what you're doing. You're praying in his will that his will would be done. Right? I mean, what did he tell the disciples when they asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he told them in that line, Your kingdom come, your... on earth as it is in heaven. Right? We can pray for things that we want. But the main thing is to pray for things that we almost instinctively know that God wants for us. So Jesus is not talking about the revealed will of God. We have that in this book. We know what to do with that. 
when we're praying for the Lord's will to be done this way, we're praying that His good will and purposes that are not in this book, all right, would be done for our good and for His glory. And sometimes it's going to rub against our natural instincts. We want to pray something like, Lord, I want this, or I want that, but do what you want to do, and do what you want to do with me. Do what's best for me, and what makes you look great in this request, or this supplication that I'm making. And what's really interesting at this point is the parallel in Luke 22. It tells us that an angel came and strengthened him in this prayer. And he's going to need that. We pick up a kind of an echo of it from the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews 5, 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, meaning that awe for the Father. So the angel ministered to them, as they do. But here's the big reason why Jesus is in the emotional agony he's in. You need to get this. He is asking his Abba Father in heaven to spare him, if he wills it, if there's another way he would not have to endure his Father's wrath on the cross for all of the sins of all the people in human history that would ever believe in him. This great sorrow that he's feeling is having to suffer and die for the sins of mankind. And you might ask, was he scared of the pain on the cross? I don't think that's primary at all, if at all. I think he's anxious about having to experience something something he never had to experience before or would ever experience again. What is that? Separation from his father. Their relationship for the first time is going to be severed, cut. Cut on the cross while he's dying as he gives up his human spirit. He's laying down his life for the sheep as the good shepherd, and he's going to be alone on that cross. Why? Because God cannot look upon and have fellowship with sin. It's disgusting to him. Jesus was not ever, nor did he become a sinner himself for us. Because remember, he had to be a holy and perfect sacrifice. But because he's perfectly holy, he doesn't know what this is like. He doesn't know what it's like to sin. And he doesn't know what it's like as a human being to have to pay for it. When Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, He's talking about what Jesus endured on the cross. Listen carefully. This is a good way to think about it. When Jesus is crucified, God treated him as if he were dealing with all of us. Our sins. Of all the people that he would ever save. And in that great exchange, as it's called, he declares us just 
and right before Him. God treats us as if we are His Son, Jesus, having lived that perfect life on earth. That, that's sobering. And that's amazing grace. And let me share with you another sobering thought. We often think about how terrible the cross of Christ was and that He had to suffer for people's sins of murder, robbery, rape, adultery, fornication, things like that. All the big ones, right? That's true. He died to forgive people of all of that. But guess what? He suffered and died for our respectable sins too. Did you ever think that every bit of your rebellion against God, every sin, every thoughtless word, deed, selfish thing we've ever said or done, put Christ on His cross? Jesus died to forgive even people who worry without a cause, who get irritable, frustrated, angry about the littlest things, and who complain and badmouth people big time and don't forgive others. Really? Yes. Because they're all sins against a perfectly holy and righteous God. We're talking about the real sinfulness of sin. See, when you get that in your mind, in your heart, grilled in, then you're going to see why this agony makes a lot of sense. In a sense, each and every person in this room, every person who has ever lived, helped crucify Jesus Christ. Because of who we are and what we've done, He had to suffer and die to redeem you. And so now, Jesus is thinking of that moment when, as Romans 6 tells us, the wages or the payment, the penalty of sin is being paid, which is death. But that word translated here as death, there does not just refer to physical death. It literally refers to the separation from the body and the soul when the sinner goes where? Unredeemed. To hell. Jesus is horrified in His garden prayer by the thought that He's going to be separated from the Father. And the very idea of him suffering that, taking on the punishment for all the sins of all who would believe is bringing him striking terror into his heart. And I have to remind you that when Jesus experienced this wrath on the cross, that holy anger of God, that's what unforgiven sinners, citizens of hell, experience every moment in eternity. That torment, that darkness, misery that the unredeemed feel every single moment in hell, which is why when he's dying on the cross at three o'clock that following afternoon, he cries out to the Father. You can see it in chapter 15 of this gospel. In verse 34, it's in all the gospels, it's very familiar. Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
That's what hell on earth looks like. That's what it sounds like. That's what people in hell are crying out every moment of every hour of every day. He'd never experienced, imagined that kind of experience before. But because of the blood of this Lamb, you and I in Christ, if we're in Christ, we never have to experience that. That's why the gospel is such great news. And back in our text in verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch just one hour? Here's where the admonition starts. Right? Jesus going back to the leaders. They're taking a nap. And he calls out Peter by his more formal name, his legal name. Peter actually is the rock, is kind of like a nickname. And so... When he wanted to get serious with him, it's like, Simon, like he had said in the denial, Simon, oh, Simon. I think the Lord kind of does that to me. Like if I, if I were in the flesh, one of those 11 at the time, he would have said, he wouldn't have called me Bernie. He would have said, Bernard, really? Couldn't you just stay awake for one hour, pray with me? Am I asking for too much? continues, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit, that's your heart and soul, indeed is willing, but the flesh, Matthew translated better as the body, is weak. Our humanity. We know how hard it is to do what we want to do, what we will to do, even when we decide to do it, right? I mean, Jesus commanded them to stay awake and pray, and they probably wanted to, and they tried to, and they failed to. They just didn't get it done. And the Lord also taught his followers to pray that the Lord would lead us not into what? But deliver us from evil. A better translation would really be the evil one. It's really grammatically referring to the person. We need and we should ask God for his help with testing and temptation. Most constantly. Jesus is praying and asking these apostles to pray as we should for the Lord to help us to obey him and his word. King David prayed something like that in his confession in Psalm 51. When he, I mean, to paraphrase it, he said, Lord, make me willing to obey you. We need his help through the power of the Holy Spirit to do that, and he promises to give it to us. But we have to pray for it, and I know this is a common struggle for you and I as Christians, is it not? Let me ask you a question. Is anyone satisfied here with their prayer life? There better not be a hand that goes up. I'm certainly not. In fact, I would tell you that if you're satisfied with your prayer life, you need to pull me aside in the fellowship area and teach me something. Because I'm not. And because prayer is about as important a thing to do in the Christian life, it's also one of the hardest things to do. To do it well, to do it diligently. Why? One word. I can give you one word you can hang your hat on. Distraction. Distraction. Because first off, we fail to be disciplined with prayer. Most of us are not going to pray as we should if we don't have at least a set time of day to get prayer in. Usually sandwiched with the reading of God's Word, which is another spiritual discipline we constantly struggle with. 
That means a quiet or devotional time, maybe with the Lord. Eat Bible, talk with God. But to pray then and throughout the day, you know, pray without ceasing, we need to be disciplined and we need to remove distractions from us. Here's a big help I'll share with you right now. Big suggestion. This works for me. When you sense that you have to pray about something, maybe somebody else's prayer request or something you need help with, do it right then and there on the spot. Don't delay like these guys are doing. Because if you do, it's going to be tougher to get to it later. When most of you know if you send me a prayer request, whether it be on the phone or email or in a text, especially if it has any sense of urgency, when I get it, I try to jump on it as soon as I can. If it's a text and you want prayer, oftentimes I'll just reply right back with the text, with the prayer. One reason why is I want to help you and I want to get this to the Lord as quickly as possible. But secondly, because if I don't, I will often forget your request, then I'll put it on. I mean, if you're, if you're having trouble praying right now at just a set time or just in the flow of normal life, I can tell you with a high degree of certainty, you're probably being easily distracted, which is the strategy of the enemy who does not want you to pray. The devil hates prayer. Right? He knows what prayer can do with God which is why he's working overtime to get the apostles so sleepy tired that they wouldn't pray. That's one of his strategies. I know some of you pray at night, and I have too, and listen, the Lord is merciful, and you're praying, and you didn't finish it. How do you move these distractions? I'm going to give you two suggestions. So I would take note of these. Number one, make an appointment. Make an appointment with God. Do it. Tag God. Time alone with God. And I know that might sound a little dry, but that's how you build any good habit or spiritual discipline. Again, set a time and a place. You're like your little prayer closet, wherever that is. Prioritize it. That's been huge for me over these last several years. And when you get with God and His Word, I would pray before, during your time in the Word, and after. And that's going to help in your personal prayer. Now, what about corporate prayer? The New Testament tells us we come together, not just on Sunday to encourage and build one another up, which is why we need to be here as often as we can, but to stir up one another, yes, love and good works, we're doing the one another's. That happens also in corporate and public prayer of the church. In that well-known section of the early church's lifestyle, how they lived day-to-day in Acts chapter 2, they met regularly every day to learn the doctrine of the apostles, break bread, and pray together. Acts 2.42. And that wasn't written for us just as some interesting narrative, historical anecdote. It was written by the Spirit through Luke as an example and a pattern and a practice for us to follow. How do you do that today? We're not living in first century Israel. I get it. There's a different context. You can make an appointment on your calendar as, you, as your schedule or the providence of God allows, and you could take just one hour a week or every two, three, or four weeks, just monthly at least to start, and get online with us 
in our church's Thursday night prayer meeting from 8 to 9. I'm telling you, God is moving in that meeting. And if you go, you're going to be glad that you did. For those of you that haven't done it before or in some time. And I'll tell you, when God's people were involved in corporate sin, they came together for corporate prayer. In the Old Testament, they called it a solemn assembly. We did one of those ones. God is honored by and blesses corporate prayer. So I'm just telling you, get your feet wet. Schedule yourself to come once or twice a month, maybe for starters. And I, I would ask, why not? I mean, jump in the water. It's fine. And by the way, some of you are bashful about praying in public, corporate prayer. I understand that. Well, in the prayer meeting, you don't even have to pray out loud in that meeting if you don't want to. You can mute your audio, mute your video. I mean, folks, let's be real. That meeting's on Zoom. You can pray in your pajamas, which some of us probably do. You can pray from your bed. You can pray that on your couch. I mean, what more can you ask for? I mean, we can't make it easier. I mean, unless we did the pop-in, came over to your house. Although I would tell you, you may get too comfortable if you pray from your bed, because you may wind up like these disciples and make a snooze. And if you snooze, you lose. So we're talking about removing distractions. Number one, make an appointment. Number two, now I'm going to get now I'm going to get personal and real with you with all of us. Remove this thing. Remove your phone. I could have added TV binge watching or surfing the net and video games, but let's face it. This device, this smartphone that can leave you dumb is a prayer killer. Killer. I will tell you right now, you want to have a better prayer, productive life, faithful prayer life, turn off your notifications. If you can't ignore them, most of us can't. Don't hold the phone. Don't even have it close to you when you have this in your hands and when you're praying. I think the devil loves these things. After all, isn't he the prince of the power of the air? This thing is addictive. If you want to be addicted to anything at all, it should be prayer. Jesus told these men, pray so you won't give up, you won't give in to temptation. We can do the same thing by praying for the Lord to help us to put this away. This temptation. What's on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook when it's time to pray? It's a distraction to prayer. You can't deny it. You can check your social media stuff out later. And so I'll be real with you a little further. Because we're church family. We can do that. Can you and I justify the claim that we don't have time to spend an hour with the church in a prayer meeting while we spend that same hour mindlessly wherever we are scrolling through this thing? Liking a post or posting something? Is that more God-glorifying in any way? I'm not talking about if you're working or you're with your family, dinner, or some event, or even resting at 8 o'clock. You've had a tough day. You're very tired because you're physically spent. That's not what I'm talking about. 
These men were tired and sleepy, by the way. And Jesus said to them three different times in the text, Can't you guys just spend a little time praying with me, for me? Fatigue wasn't even an excuse to, to him, Jesus. And this is going down at midnight. Okay? So let's look at the rest of this admonition, starting in verse 39. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words more than once. Guys, come on. Wow. And again, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. Ah. Little prayer guilt, maybe? They had no comeback to the Lord. They didn't know what to say. And this is not the first time Jesus has left his disciples speechless. The only thing to do in a situation like that, what they should have done is confess and repent. Okay? We should do that. I would say do it later today, tonight. Hopefully you're reflecting on what the Lord's been telling us in his word here, if this is you. Say something like, one-on-one, -on -one, just, Lord, I'm sorry I don't pray as well and as often as I should. Forgive me. Help me to do better. To start new tomorrow and to pray more, pray better. Verse 41, And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. <laughs> that first phrase, it's like he's saying, You've had enough sleep. It's go time. Disciples, Judas has delivered me over to the Jews. So the prediction at the Passover meal, this last supper, is being fulfilled. It's like, it's time. Here he comes. It's my time. Finally, rise. Let us be going. See my betrayer as at hand. It's like, get up. Let's go. Game on. Our Lord is on mission for the kingdom. I think he's been refreshed by this prayer. He's been blessed. The angel has ministered to him, and the Spirit has lifted his spirit. So he purposes, wills to do what he should, what must be done, what his father told him to do, as he's done throughout his ministry. The father says, jump, and the son says, how high? Jesus isn't saying to them, get up and run, take off. No, he's not going to do that. He's saying, get up, we're going to meet Judas. Here he comes with an eye shot, and there's a huge group of temple guards right with him, right at the spot where he's going to be arrested. He's the perfect man, perfect obedience, perfect courage. In a similar way, the Lord calls us to pray and pick up our own cross every day. And we can do it. And we must do it. He calls, and then he equips those he calls. And one of the main pieces of equipment that he gave us to do that is prayer. Just close with this thought. The Methodist founder, John Wesley, said this in the 18th century. He spent two hours daily in prayer. And he commonly said that, quote, God does nothing but an answer to prayer. Pretty true. 
Not that he has to do it that way, but he chooses to. And then the reformer, Martin Luther, said, If I fail to spend two hours in praying each morning, the devil gets the victory throughout the day. I have so much business. It's like I have so much to do, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. Right? I can't get on with my day unless I pray. That's what he's saying. And people, I'll be realistic here. I'm not, I'm not expecting anyone here, myself included, to pray two, three hours a day. I will tell you, I wish I could. Maybe I should pray about that. But let's make the main thing the main thing. We need to do that. We've looked at prayer. We've looked at the Lord's last temptation. You and I still have temptations to go. Right? And suffering. Things we have to deal with in this life. And Jesus has reminded us in this text how to deal with it. He's given us an exhortation, a supplication, and even an admonition when we don't obey. Just one word. What does God want you to do? Pray. So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we never know, we will never know until we get the glory, maybe, the depths of the agony and the pain that you, our Savior, endured for us that night alone for the love of your people like us. But we do know what you're teaching us to do in your example and in your response to your last temptation, and that is to watch to be alert, to be awake, and to pray, Lord. I pray the Holy Spirit would help each and every one of us to do that in a new way. Let this be the time of revival, restoration, refreshment for the people that are assembled in this room congregating in Christ, Lord. People talk about revival. They want revival in America. They want the nation to be revived. Revived. I don't know why they don't understand the nation won't be revived. Dead people can't make themselves rise. They have to have Christ. The church has to be revived before it can have any impact on the nation. So I pray you would do a work of revival where it's always happened in times of revival, including this country. And that is the church praying, seeking your face, in repentance and faith. And Lord, for those who are lost, unredeemed today, not sure if they know you as Lord and Savior, their only hope, their only hope for not undergoing the experience that you briefly did for that time on the cross of separation from the Father, from hell, the emotion of hell, Lord, is for them to repent, to turn to you, and then trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sin. Just by their faith alone. By your grace alone. May they believe in you. Give themselves up to you. Surrender their lives to you, which you own and made anyway. I pray you're going to do that work. Stir that heart that way in someone today here. And those that will listen later online. We pray these things. And all God's people said,
Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the giving tab at the top of the homepage. 